This is Brad Keithley, Managing Director of Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Welcome to the weekly top three, the top three things on our mind here at Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets for the week of May 25th, 2020. The weekly top three is a regular segment on the Michael Duke Show. The show broadcasts on Facebook Live and via streaming audio from the show's website weekdays from 6 to 8 a.m. I join Michael weekly in the first hour of Tuesday's show from 6.20 to 7 a.m. for a discussion between the two of us about our three issues. We post the podcast of our discussion following the show on the Alaska for Sustainable Budgets Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Spotify pages, also on the new Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets website, as well as the projects page on national blog site medium.com. You can find past episodes of the weekly top three also at the same locations. Keep in mind that in addition to these podcasts, during the week, you also can follow and participate in the discussion with us of these and other issues affecting Alaska's fiscal and economic condition by following us on the Alaska for Sustainable Budgets Facebook page and through our posts on Twitter. This week, our top three issues are these. First, what will we be focused on with candidates as we head into the election season? Second, Where is the LNG project headed now that it has FERC approvals? And third, why Alyeska's recent announcement that it is ending curtailments doesn't mean TAPS is back up and running at bigger volumes. And now, let's join Michael. Let's get into this and talk about the weekly top three, and I just discussed it a few minutes ago because you can see it in my schedule, but uh, we're going to be focusing in on elections, and uh, that's really kind of the big news where we go from here now that the legislature is, uh, has gone into, as uh, you know, adjourned and, and sin died out. I mean, wh- where do we go now? Yeah, so the thing I, the same thing I was focusing on uh, over the weekend is that uh, filing date. Uh, for candidates, for primary candidates, uh, and for and for general election uh, 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 independence, uh, is a week from today, right? Uh, uh, June first. Yep. Uh, and we're uh, and and we're off to the races with uh, with people. I, Alaska is always always uh, is interesting to me because there's always some surprises at the end uh, in in the uh, in the filings and in candidates. Uh, and I'm and I'm interested to see uh, who uh, who pops up at the end uh, of this uh, filing cycle. Yeah, you always get that. You always get that notice in the paper the next day that at the last minute at at three forty nine p.m. somebody waltzed in with their thirty five dollars or whatever it is to file, and you're like, wow, didn't see that coming. Not you know, not at all. And, and we've got some can. We've got some. Uh, 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 candidates out there that need, or we got some incumbents that need opposition, and and hopefully there's some people considering uh, uh, running against them and 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 setting up some primary challenges, or you know, long game setting up a, a independent run against a uh, against the candidate. Right. But the thing that the thing that I also focused on uh, as I was thinking about it is what's going to be at least for us, what's going to be the defining issue uh, during uh, during this primary season. And, and certainly it's going to be uh, the budget. Uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about oil as well with the oil tax initiative on the ballot. Uh, but certainly to us, it's going to be uh, it's going to be the budget. But it's not just it's not just next year's budget. I mean, the thing that I want to keep coming back to, the thing that I want that I, that I think it's important to focus on, 
is we're not facing a one-year crisis. We're not even facing a two-year crisis. Uh, we're facing a crisis that now goes on uh, for uh, for the next decade at least, if, if not beyond that. Um, when you look at uh, traditional revenues um, and you look at oil prices, I mean, oil prices have recovered from their from their sub-zero uh, uh, period, uh, but they're they're steadying in the $30 range, which is substantially below where we thought we were going to be uh, a year ago. And the outlook is that they that they continue uh, in that $30, $40, $50 uh, range over the next decade. Um, and then you look at uh, the the spending levels that we've had, even if you cap spending to, uh, at inflation, uh, they're just well in excess of, of billions of dollars in excess of uh, levels. So how what, what we're going to be looking for with Canada is how are we going to address that gap? Uh, certainly the uh, uh, part of it is the is the Hammond 5050 uh, approach, uh, but that still leaves uh, a, a, a billion plus uh, averaged over the next decade about a billion six uh, a fiscal gap. So how are you going to close that fiscal gap? And and again it's not I'm, I'm, we're just not asking the question for next year because you know some people would say, well, we're we're not going to do the reverse sweep, and so we'll have you know the PCE to pay for it. It's not just a next year issue; it's a it's a decade long issue, right? Uh, and 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 we're going to be looking for candidates who talk about how they're structurally uh, going to fix this issue, not just uh, not just you know raid the last piggy bank they can find to. Uh, uh, to patch it over right. for another year. Well, Brad Keithley is our guest, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. You put together a good chart which takes a look at those revenue forecasts going out for the next 10 years. And it's not, I mean, it's colorful, but it's not pretty. I guess we'll put it that way. Uh, I mean, we're looking at some serious deficits and we need some new solutions. Uh, you know, but we can't do business as usual. Yeah, for those looking at it on Facebook, the, the, the blue is the projection of traditional revenues and this is at you know thirty dollar growing uh, to forty and fifty dollar forty dollar oil uh, over the ten year period uh, that's what we get out of traditional revenues about a billion and a half uh, averaged over the next uh, over the next decade the yellow is uh, is is the fifty fifty split uh, it is the the fifty percent that goes to government uh, using POMV fifty fifty uh, the 50 percent that goes to government and that's about a billion six so between the two you've got about uh three billion dollars a little over three billion dollars uh in revenues that you're looking at but the spending side uh and again um, i know a lot of people talk about well i'm going to cap spending and inflation okay well this caps spending and inflation and the spending side over the next decade averages out averages out at about uh, five billion dollars, about four point nine billion dollars. So you've got about three billion dollars in revenues. You got about uh, uh, four point nine billion dollars, a little over three billion dollars in revenues. You got about four point nine billion dollars um, in spending. And that's a gap of about a, a billion six, a billion seven, somewhere in that somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and that is every year, year in, year out. And as we talked on last week's show, even if you even if you did, even if you undid the reverse sweep, even if you took PCE and all that stuff, uh, that gives you maybe a billion five, maybe maybe gives you one year's worth uh, of revenues. So the, the the structural issues that we're that we're facing 
the the gap is in the gray uh, in that chart. The structural fish issues that we're facing are just are just long lasting, and and you know some people are going to answer it by saying, well, I'm just going to cut spending. Uh, well, you, you got to start. You got to cut spending immediately because you don't. We're not going to. We're not going to phase into this situation. We're deep into it now. It starts. Uh, it started. You know, several years ago, uh, and it continues on. You, there's no. And, and we've used up savings. We've used up the, the statutory budget reserve and the constitutional budget reserve, uh, about twenty billion dollars in savings. And so, you know, we're we're into it right now. So if you're going to cut, you got to cut now. Uh, if that's your solution, you got to cut now, uh, and you've got to cut deep. And so the question is going to be, where, where are you going to cut? Uh, remember that Governor Dunleavy tried to cut a billion uh, a couple of years ago, and we saw the outrage over that, and that was just a billion. And this is this is a billion plus uh, over the course of uh, over the course of ten years. Right. So it so the the structural focusing on the structural fix, and and having candidates talk about how they're going to address that uh, that that structural issue. Uh, long term, I think is uh, is is the key to 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 key the key issue that that we're going to be focusing on in the coming election cycle. We also, of course, uh, on the program here, we have our charter of changes, and 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 I don't think you and I have really we've discussed it in passing, but I think those four components as well are going to be very important. The changing of the players, obviously, is what you're working on now. Changing the venue up until uh, you know moving the legislative session on the road system also important. But those three rules: the changing of the rules, the binding caucus, the conflict of interest rules, and the Open Meetings Act. Uh, I think all of those will be critical as well. What do you think? Yeah, that's that's sort of the the process. I mean, there's, you, you got to have a process to get to structural change, right? And you've got to have an open and transparent process and a process that that creates incentives for people to to make these fundamental changes. And I and I think those process issues uh, are, uh, are are critical as well. Uh, but but what what are you trying what are you trying to achieve at the end of the day with the process changes? Um, and it's it's you're trying to achieve the substantive change of getting the budget back under control um, and getting this, the the fiscal uh, uh, the fiscal future uh, that we're facing uh, 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 resolved. Um, and so it's it's sort of a combination of both. You need the process to work toward. You need a, you need a good solid process that works toward a solution. Um, and then you need, to, but you also need to have the solution in mind, what you're, what you're working toward. As you, uh, as you look at this in the slate of candidates and of course, uh, you know, all 40 representatives and 11 of the 20 senators are up for reelection. Uh, are you going to be focusing on some specific races? Do you think as you, as you dive down into this and take a look at it, are there folks out there that you believe, uh, you know, are linchpins in this whole system that, that kind of need to go that they're you know the, the ringleaders as it were of uh you know the kind of the, the symphony of our own destruction here that just need to uh, to be ousted i do i mean there's leaders there's leaders leadership in the legislature that i think has has led us into this problem have have temporized um and have uh, have, come, have come up with the wrong solutions uh, Natasha certainly, Natasha von Imhoff is certainly one of those. Kathy Diesel is one of those. John Coghill uh, is one of those over in the House. Uh, Gary Knopp uh, was a uh, was a key player, I think, in in setting the legislature off on the on the wrong path. Uh, and Ron Gillum, I think, is certainly a strong challenger as he showed uh, last uh, election cycle in his run against uh, Peter Machecki. I think Ron's a strong challenger. Uh, 
strong challenger there. Uh, on the House side, I, I hope we find somebody that's uh, strong. I know we don't know there's two opponents already uh, signed on to run against uh, uh, Jennifer Johnston, um, and I think uh, I think that's a good thing. I think uh, uh, Chuck Cop uh, is another problem uh, in the in the House. Somebody who's uh, you know who's viewed the P- PFD as a piggy bank. Uh, uh, to be raided and, and used to, to continue to fund government uh, rather than using more equitable means. Um, so, yes, I, 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 it, it's really leadership, uh, changing the leadership, um, uh, maybe bringing new people into leadership uh, or, um, or you know, in the caucus vote, but, but changing out the leadership, I think, is where, uh, where our focus is going to be. Harold says the major factor utilized by the leadership resulting in the crashing of the state is the binding caucus. And uh, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Uh, They've held a lot of people's feet to the fire and they've been allowed to kind of steer the ship with that, Brad. It has been the one major tool that is basically, I mean, even people who I thought were, you know, good people. Uh, Tammy Wilson, et cetera, uh, who fought very hard during the process to try and shrink the government and shrink the budgets. Even they were, you know, kind of bullied into it in the end, voting for budgets that they didn't agree with because of this binding caucus idea. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've had problems with the binding caucus going back to 2014. I had a big falling out at one point with uh, uh, one of the state representatives over that over that very issue. She was advocating, continuing to advocate for the binding caucus uh, in the 24 election, 2014 election. I, I went a different direction. Um, and she got really upset. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the, uh, I think the binding caucus has been, has been a problem for a long time, but, but you, but yes, that the process is a problem. Uh, but you have to move beyond that. And, 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 and what I'm concerned about this election cycle, frankly, is, um, uh, is, is candidates who are going to try to get by on things like, you know, capping spending at inflation and, and and preserving the PFD and and all good all good issues, but they leave that billion and a and a half dollar uh, uh, gap uh, between preserving the PFD, uh, taking traditional revenues where they are, uh, and capping spending at inflation. It, we have to do more, much more, uh, to, uh, to to reset uh, our fiscal picture. And so it's not it's not this is not going to be an election cycle where to me it's going to be satisfactory just to talk about process issues and to talk vaguely about uh, spending caps and, and, and preserving the PFD and things like that. You're going to have to, to me, candidates are going to have to get down into the details, down into the nitty gritty sum of how they're going to close that billion and a half dollar gap. And as I say, it's not, it's not just a one year gap. So you can't use, you know, you can't use the reverse sweep, uh, as your answer, because that's that's a one-year answer, and we got a ten-year problem. Um, so it's um, the binding caucus is a problem, the process is a problem, but we need to talk about this. Can this campaign, I think, to me, needs to needs to be about the substance of how you're going to close this gap. Well, and I think maybe what we need, we maybe we need a candidate form. You know, that's maybe what we need is we need a good candidate form. With Brad Keithley as a moderator asking some questions and showing some slides and asking them how they're going to deal with that, that would be that would be an interesting uh, conversation to say the least. Uh, maybe that's something we should work towards, Brad, to try and and put together. That would be that would be good. That would be eye opening. I think. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good idea, Michael. Um, that's something the show could do outside the yeah, yeah. That's something we could do outside the boundaries of the show. That, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I think we might uh, we might want to talk about that. What are you going to be working on as you as you look at these candidates? What are what are the questions you're going to be asking them here in the next two minutes? If you can give me just kind of an idea of, you know, what what direction are you going when you talk to candidates or pose these questions to candidates? It's it's going to be. I mean, the first question is going to be open ended. What are you going to do about the billion? and a half dollar gap uh, that we've got between the PFD and, uh, and current spending levels. Um, and, and if the answer to that is I'm going to cut spending, then let's talk about where you're going to cut spending and whether that's realistic. If the answer is I'm going to have uh, uh, use additional revenues, uh, okay, where are the revenues going to come from and how are you, how are you going to structure them? Um, it, it's, I mean, it, it's all going to be focused, for me at least, it's all going to be focused uh, on that gap and uh, and what the the plans are for dealing with the gap. I mean, the gap's not fictitious. The gap's there, uh, and 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 candidates need to have a plan. At least at least from my perspective, can candidates need to have a plan to address it. They just can't wish it away. Uh, and and I'm not going to be tolerant really of candidates who say, well, I'm just going to you know do the reverse sweep or not do the reverse sweep. As I say, that will get you a year uh, out of ten. Um, and that's not going to be that's not going to be much of a solution. So uh, it's all going to be about the gap uh, and uh, and and what candidates are going to do, what candidates' thoughts are with respect to, to closing that gap. And I uh, I really like this idea of uh, of having a public forum. I think we need to do that. I think you and I should talk about that here uh, off the air here in the near future. Maybe we should come together and have a candidates forum and get some of these, uh, especially some of these more contentious seats. Um, with uh, you know where the control is, and invite the they may not show up, but we'll invite them. The Kathy Geisels and the and the Natasha von Imhoffs and the Bert Stedmans and the John Coghills of the world with their with their uh, with their opponents, and ask them these questions. I think these are I think these are going to be very very viable uh, questions that need to be answered. That brings us to number two, which we can we got a couple minutes here to kind of tease and and set the groundwork for. The Alaska LNG project has received some good news uh, from the uh, from the feds. Let's talk about those FERC approvals. Well, the, the, we finally got uh, the FERC approval, which is which is sort of the key federal approval. Uh, there are a lot of other federal approvals that 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 the project needs as well. Uh, but they flow out of the FERC approval. The FERC approval is sort of the hub for those. Um, and and after a long and arduous process, uh, the state uh, finally has achieved the uh, the project finally achieved the approvals the FERC approval necessary to uh, to go go forward with the project. Now that doesn't mean the project's anywhere near ready to go forward. Uh, Larry personally had a had a decent piece uh, in the in the ADN over the weekend. Uh, talking about the fact that the 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 uh, uh, project isn't economic uh, under current uh, LNG circumstances, and I and I think that's exactly right. Uh, we've started tracking uh, uh, world LNG prices. The LNG market's become a lot more liquid, uh, and the LNG prices are depressed. Uh, the AGDC, the the Alaska Gas Line Development Corp, the the state agency responsible for the project. Uh, and who's been on the lead on the project and who's the holder of the FERC certificate has, has talked about trying to find a partner. If they can't find a partner, putting, uh, putting the assets up for auction. Um, unlike some, I think there's going to be some buyers um, in an auction. 
if the if the AGDC uh, goes forward. Um, but I think there's I think I think there are going to be many who are going to be surprised uh, at who those buyers are and not and not happy uh, uh, with who those buyers are. What are we talking about, Brad? Well, Michael, I, there there may be there may be a, a other bidders as well, but I think I think we're going to have two bidders for these assets. Um, and again, what AGDC has talked about is 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 getting to a point they've gotten the FERC approvals. Uh, uh, they're, they're in the midst of a uh, reassessment of the project cost with uh, hope that the project cost comes down. The last estimate was a few years ago. It was $43 billion. They're hoping that the, co the project cost uh, uh, comes down perhaps significantly, perhaps below uh, 40 into the into the 30s. Um, and, then, and then a process where they try to see if there's any partners out there that want to go forward with the with the project uh, with the project currently, um, and then they've talked about about a process that if if they're not able to find anybody that uh, uh, wants to go forward with the project currently after they've reassessed the costs, uh, then putting the assets that the state owns uh, up for auction. And these are these are significant assets. They're not hard assets in terms of pipe, but but the assets that would be up for bid uh, are the permits, the approvals um, uh, around the project. Uh, the state has about $500 million, about a half a billion dollars invested uh, in, uh, in, in, in those permits, um, expenditures they made to, to get to the point. Um, and and as, we, as we just were talking about in the break, uh, those, um, uh, those permits uh, have positioned you to be able to go forward quickly uh, if uh, if the economics of the project uh, uh, break and uh, and there's a there's a path forward to making the project work, I think there's going to be two bidders. Um, uh, if if the if the bidding uh, uh, if the bidding is wide open, one's going to be China. Um, I think China would, if they were permitted to buy the assets, um, I think there is a chance that China would go forward uh, with the project. Uh, they view it. They would view it as a long-term uh, resource uh, that would be, if they bought the assets and 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 built the pipe, that would be under their control. Um, uh, in a, in the Pacific Rim, uh, in a location that's uh, relatively accessible to uh, uh, to Chinese markets, more accessible than uh, than in the U.S. Gulf Coast. There's been rumors about China uh, going into the U.S. Uh, uh, and uh, and picking up some of the distressed assets, some of the distressed uh, shale assets uh, that are out there right. uh, uh, coming on the market as a result of current market conditions. Right. And I think I think it would make a lot of sense for China to, to give a very hard look uh, at the Alaska LNG uh, assets. The other potential bidder would be Russia. Uh, and 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 why Russia? Uh, because uh, Alaska LNG is probably uh, a a fairly significant competitor uh, to Russian LNG projects um, and it would be while, while they wouldn't while they wouldn't articulate it this way it would be one of those things where uh, where you buy out somebody to to avoid them being a competitor you would right. you would use you would use terminology about you know consolidation and lower overhead and all that sort of stuff that you do when you're buying a competitor but it would be uh, to buy out a competitor I I think those are if we if we go to auction, I think those are the two two likeliest bidders. 
uh, in an auction. Um, and, and, and I think they would, I think they would make significant, uh, bids, at least China would make a significant bid. Question is what the question is, whether, uh, uh, we would ever, we would ever accept that, but I, that's, that's where these assets fit right now. They fit in, in either China's hands or they fit in Russia's hands. And, and that's, of course, kind of a scary proposition. Uh, you know, if Russia, you know, China may buy it and develop it because they would be one of the largest consumers of this uh, in this, you know, in this half of the world. Uh, but Russia buying it and then basically shelving it, I mean, really is kind of what they would do. They would sit on it. Be you know until their assets are expended because you know as you said as a competitor that would make sense for them not to compete with themselves and we'd be back to where we were before. So so Alaskans may Alaskans may say, well we got to sell these assets. I mean we've got a half a billion dollars into them. We got to sell them. We got to maximize the value somehow. Uh, we want to put it in the hands of somebody who may take the project forward. Well that's that's who you're that's who you're going to be. If you want to maximize the value uh, by putting them into an open auction, that's that's who you're going to find are the are the most motivated bidders uh, right now. So, uh, if if that's not what you want, if you don't want it in their hands, uh, then uh, then then you need to temper your expectations of the prices we're going to get uh, for these assets when they go to auction. Because in anybody else's hands, I mean, the market for this stuff is China. So if 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 you're not China. You're you're hoping you you would you would buy these assets with the hope of someday using them to to deliver them to China. Uh, if China is not your partner in this, or China is not uh, not uh, on board with buying the assets, they're going to be stranded assets for for an extended period. So the value of them to somebody else other than China or Russia. I think is going to be is going to be somewhat uh, somewhat limited. Now, this is all, of course, at this point, speculation, but it's an educated guess based on where you uh, you know what you've done and and you know your history in the oil and gas market and kind of looking at this. What kind of time frame would we be talking about in that, Brad, before they would decide? Oh, I think uh, I think AGDC has said they want to be in a position to make that decision by the end of the year. I mean, they, they're talking about having the. The, the new cost estimate wrapped up fairly promptly uh, in June, I think, uh, uh, was the was the last uh, uh, estimate I saw. Then they would go back to the traditional partners, ConocoPhillips, BP, Exxon, or Hillcorp now, and say, you know, do you want to? Are you prepared to go forward with this project at the revised estimate? Uh, go through a process of uh, of, of those discussions. Um, <coughs> perhaps there would be others who would. Uh, uh, who would who would want to participate in discussions about going forward right now? But I, I think the expectation is those those discussions get wrapped up by the end of the year, uh, and then they talk about going to auction. Harold says Alaska LNG isn't going anywhere for another two decades. Forget the gas line; the market isn't ready for Alaska gas. The problem is, and this is just my take, and you can comment on it, Brad. But the problem is, is that if we base the pre-planning of like gas lines and oil lines, you know, based on current market conditions, we're always betting on future market conditions when we do that, right? Because the process is so long. And so, I mean, it took three years to get this FERC thing approved. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's got a 20-year cycle on it. If we bet on today's prices as to where things are going, nothing would ever get built. We've got to, we've got to you know, look at where things are going to be in the future. Am I wrong? No, you're you're right, uh, but the problem is the projections of future prices aren't much better than uh, right. aren't much better than current prices. Um, 
the the Platts does a, has a futures market now for what's called JKM, uh, Jap Japan Korea marker uh, crude, which is sort of the Asian uh, Asian marker crude or Asian marker LNG rather. I'm sorry. Um, and and it goes out like five years, I think. I was doing it uh, over the weekend, and um, uh, it's it it never gets out of the five dollar range. Um, I mean, it's currently below even that, but it never gets out of the five dollar range. So, yeah, we need to we need to look forward, but but the the forward look uh, isn't as it isn't a whole lot better than uh, than the current look. Think things may change, and you want to be positioned to go forward, and that's been the philosophy that AGDCs use to, you know, continue to spend the dollars along with partners, continue to spend the dollars to get the FERC, to get the FERC approvals, because now you've got the FERC approvals and you don't have to wait around for them anymore. But, uh, but the economics, uh, the economics do need to change. Harold thinks that we're, uh, Harold thinks that we're all writing total fiction here at this point and that we're just wasting our time talking about this because this is all fantasy. Well, I, you know, LNG is, it, it's either going nowhere, uh, or, uh, uh, or it's going somewhere. And, and, and as I say, uh, it, the, the AGDC wants to put the has talked about putting the assets up for auction, so they're trying to push it somewhere. Where would the somewhere be? Uh, uh, well, it's not going to be in a in a U.S. supplier who doesn't have uh, who doesn't have a market guaranteed uh, in China. Who's got the market? China. Um, so if if they go somewhere, uh, they're going to go to the market. They're going to go to to China, or they're going to go to Russia, who wants to who wants to take down. Uh, take down uh, 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 a competitor. It's it's not. I mean that's that's not that's not speculation. That's just what the market forces would tell you or tell you they're going to be. If um, if if we don't want it to go to China and we don't want it to go to Russia and we would exclude them as bidders, then the assets may not go anyplace. But if we want them to go someplace, if we want you know want it uh, want it want to either recover our five hundred million dollars or or want to uh, push forward with a project, that's that's who the market participants would be. Uh, that takes us on to number five, or number three, rather, number five. <laughs> no, I'm really getting ambitious here. Number three, which is the discussion about uh, the Alieska lifting proration, and does that mean increased oil? we got about three and a half minutes here. Yeah, so we've seen a lot of headlines uh, in the past few days. Alieska made a big deal out of the fact that it, had, that it had lifted proration on the system. Earlier in the month, it imposed a 50,000 barrel a day cut uh, on what producers could put into the system uh, in the aggregate, prorated it back. So each producer uh, had, a, had a proportionate cut uh, in the volumes that would otherwise tender. And Alieska did that because the loading schedule out of Valdez, the market uh, demand out of Valdez was was softening and Alieska saw a situation, potential situation where the volumes coming at it being delivered by the producers uh, would overwhelm its storage. Uh, uh, the offtakes wouldn't come rapid, the ships wouldn't come rapidly enough and overwhelm its storage sort of imposed a proration. Uh, Alieska has made a big deal in the past few days of rolling that proration back, uh, saying, well, we don't need to prorate the system anymore because we're back in balance and, and, uh, and, we, and we don't have a concern about what's gonna happen in storage. A lot of people, uh, including some reporters, have taken that as as good news that production is going to be back up and we're going to be, you know, uh, all these concerns about reduced production uh, have, have are now in the rearview mirror and we're back up and rolling. That's not true. 
um, part of what's going on is that Conoco has cut back uh, production significantly, uh, has slowed uh, the amount of tenders it's making into the pipeline system. And, and Conoco's announced for June that it's cutting even deeper in June. Uh, it's cutting 100,000 barrels a day. The proration was 50,000 barrels a day uh, in May, but Conoco's announced that it's cutting 100,000 barrels of production in June. So production on the system uh, uh, throughput through Alieska is actually dropping through taps is actually dropping, um, uh, has been dropping since Alyeska made the announcement, uh, as opposed to getting, going back up. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing anything other than, than I don't want people to have the sense of, oh, we've worked out of this. Yes, price is still a problem, but production isn't a problem anymore. Production is going to go back up. And, and so, you know, the, the production cavalry has somehow come over the hill to save us. That's just not the case. The production cavalry is still going down. Conoco's made the announcement of 100,000 in June, and they haven't limited it to just June. They haven't said it's going to extend beyond June, uh, but but they haven't limited it to just June. Um, and and there's some really bizarre stuff going on in the market right now. Conoco, in addition to the to the 100,000 cut, Conoco has a tanker headed for China as a hank tanker headed for Asia. So there's not even, even with 100,000 barrel a day cut, there's not enough demand on the U.S. West Coast right now uh, even to absorb uh, that reduced level of production. They're, they're sending some of their production off to China. So right. it's, it, we're, we're not out of this yet. It's all about demand. It's all about where the markets are going. We need to get things reopened to help this thing kick-started. But we're still looking at some bleak days ahead. Let's say, you know, hypothetically, uh, you know, the the demand recovers. You know, the, the states are all reopening right now. California may eventually. Now we're seeing legal challenges across the country. Uh, and I think up to nine states now are challenging some of these shutdowns and things like this. Let's say in the next six months, these that you know, everything kind of comes back, stabilizes, the demand increases. Where do we go production-wise in your mind as you look at this? Do we go back to more normal levels or are we at a permanently depressed rate on production for the foreseeable future? No, I think we go back to the 500,000 barrels a day that we were producing before we, before we went into this. I mean, there, if, if West coast demand recovers, uh, then, uh, I, then that market will open back up and, and, and we'll take uh, ANS barrels. It's going to take a while, uh, for the, for the U S West coast to recover. Not only, not only are they slower, going to be slower in opening up uh, than other parts of the country. I mean, California, Washington, and Oregon are going to be slower in opening up. Um, and not only, but but they're also heavily jet fuel uh, uh, markets, and so the jet fuel component of the market is going to be slower uh, in recovering uh, than than other areas. And the U.S. West Coast still has a bunch of ships. Uh, floating storage sitting offshore, um, uh, waiting to waiting to unload. We've had two uh, uh, ANS tankers sitting in the Puget Sound for like the past ten days, uh, waiting to unload. There's just a there's a bunch of supply, uh, excess supply that's sitting uh, in tankers off the U.S. West Coast that still has to be worked through. So uh, once we work through, once the West Coast opens back up. Demand opens back up, um, uh, and and we work off the surplus. I think we'll be back up to 500,000 barrels a day, but it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, it's not going to be the day after that. I mean, uh, Conoco's made clear that they're going to be in curtailment through June, um, and and it may be 
end of the fall, maybe deep into the fall, uh, before we finally uh, before we finally work off the surplus on the U.S. West Coast. Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable Budget. You can find a link on the Facebook page. Brad, thank you so much for coming on board. Michael, as always, thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap for another week's edition of the weekly top three from Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Thank you again for joining us. Remember that you can find past episodes on our YouTube, SoundCloud, and Spotify pages. And keep track of us during the week on Facebook and Twitter. This has been Brad Keithley, Managing Director of Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. We look forward to you joining us again next week on the Weekly Top 3.